You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Thank you for tuning into Latino Politics and News. I'm Tony Diaz. We recorded remotely for broadcast on Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Today, we're providing a Latino perspective on the brilliant new book, Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of a Changing America by Dr. Steven Kleinberg. This is based on his almost 40 years of research surveying Houstonians. We'll talk to Dr. Steven Kleinberg, who, as I am, is also an alum of the American Leadership Forum. I'll also talk to other ALF alums to provide an introduction to the book, which I think lays the groundwork to create significant structural change in Houston. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce CEO, Dr. Laura Murillo, will provide an analysis of Latino leadership, and Texas Senator Carol Alvarado will provide us insights into the political structure of Houston and Texas, which has shaped the lives of our community. For our news portion, we are recording remotely and sometimes weeks ahead of air dates. This makes it complicated to address breaking news. However, we have to address the current slaying of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is an ongoing and rapidly changing situation so facts and analyses will change day to day. However, today's show is about structural issues. In Prophetic City, John Guess is quoted as saying that the survey does not quantify the level of racism that exists in Houston. Sudden acts such as the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis streets by those assigned to serve and protect us are examples of racial bias culminating to a dangerous boiling point. We must address the layers that lead to that. Prophetic City quantifies inequities that limit the potential of black and brown communities to thrive. Social injustice is hard to quantify, easy to hide, and profoundly shapes the lives, confidence, tranquility, and peace of mind of our communities. Those factors are also vital to thrive. George Floyd grew up in Houston. Houston police have been involved in six lethal shootings in just over a month. Most of those who were killed were black or brown. Their names are Nicholas Chavez, Chris Aguirre, Adrian Medeiros, Rayshard Scales, Randy Lewis, Joe Castellanos. This issue erupts, then gets swept under the rug. However, if we do not address many of the social inequities quantified in Prophetic City, Houston will not be able to thrive. As the book says, the fate of Houston relies on the fate of young Latinos and Blacks. As I record this message, we can't know what details have changed, but as we discuss 40 years of research in Houston, about Houston, it's clear that the time for change is now. Latino Politics and News is intended to address those issues over the long haul. We hope our discussion today on Prophetic City will pave the way for more profound discussions, not just about our communities, but with our communities. We must be humanized and imagined and treated as intellectuals capable of great thoughts and great deeds. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We are, of course, in Pledge Drive. I have to point out that we are not a commercial station. Otherwise, we could not bring you the topics, guests, or issues that we bring you week in and week out. 
There are no regular shows about our art, culture, and politics on commercial television or radio. KPFT boasts a monopoly on community culture capital. We answer to our community. Please budget a donation to KPFT and make it in support of Latino politics and news today. Call 713-526-5738 or visit kpft.org. We have a monetary goal, a goal for new members, and a goal for online donations. If you are listening via the archive, you can still donate. Provide a donation in the name of Latino Politics and News, and that will go towards our overall goal. We thank you in advance for helping us to meet and shatter our goals and to keep the station on the air. Also, thanks to our crew for donating the cultural capital to keep this program going. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Solero Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, who is our summer intern through Rice University, Laure Flores, Stefano Cavasa, El Castillo. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. for Latino Politics and News here on 90.1 FM KPFT. That's followed by Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say at 6 p.m. And I also get to see you on the political talk show, What's Your Point, on Fox 26 Houston, Sundays at 7 a.m. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News. Thanks for tuning in. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, vegan, but I'm still too young to vote. So I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information in my school. I'm not taught any of this. So shows like Latino politics and news on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino politics news with Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote and have my mission. Viva KPFT. Una gota más de mi sangre Podría, debería Servir para quitarte el hambre
Thanks for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. I'm Tony Diaz. I'm thrilled to welcome our next guest and get to talk about a Latino perspective on his new book. Dr. Steven Kleinberg is founding director of the Kinder Institute at Rice University and author of Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of a Changing America. The book puts into context his findings from almost 40 years of research about Houstonians' views from all walks of life. It also drives home that Houston is, as his subtitle says, on the cusp of a changing America. First, welcome to our show, and congratulations on the book, Stephen. Oh, thank you so much, Tony. It's great to be with you. It really is a fantastic read. I do have oh, to put, put it in context this way. You first conducted the Houston survey the year before a major oil bust, and now, a couple of months before the bust. <laughs> and now your book is coming out during the COVID-19 epidemic. For a Latino perspective, we have to perform a limpia so that, <laughs> so that we can go into the model so you can write the sequel sooner. And so that's published during Houston and America's Renaissance. Because I read your book as an argument for a renaissance with Houston and Latinos at the heart of it. I want to read one of the most potent quotations from your book. Ultimately, we will need to become a true learning society overall in which everyone from birth to retirement has access to opportunities for new learning and personal growth. Break that down for us. The two big transformations of Houston. We, we did that first survey back in 1982. Houston was booming. 80% of the jobs were tied into the price of oil. Uh, one million people were moved into Houston between 1970-1982, overwhelmingly Anglos coming into Houston from everywhere else in the country, boomtown America, then the oil bust, worst regional recession of any part of the country at any time since World War II, and the recovery into the new America marked by two fundamental realities. Number one, a new economy where good blue-collar jobs have largely disappeared where education is now the critical determinant of a person's ability to earn enough money to support a family in the global knowledge economy of the 21st century. And secondly, a demographic revolution. All the growth of Houston during the oil boom years was Anglos pouring into the city. After 1982, with the collapse of the oil boom, the Anglo population of Harris County stopped growing. And all the growth of this, the most rapidly growing city in America, over the last 35 years, it's been the influx of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians. And this biracial southern city dominated by white men has become the single most ethnically diverse major metropolitan area in the country. So it's those two revolutions more clearly articulated in Houston than anywhere else. And, of course, the Latino community is by far the largest and the most central to the kind of future that Houston will build as the 21st century unfolds. Your book does a really great job of quantifying Houston just before that bust and after, as well as giving us, as you say, objective data over all these decades. I think the subtext of this version will be that, according to your book, if Latinos are behind before, they can fall further behind. And I think you quantify some of those factors. And what I hope is that we take this as a rallying cry to make sure that the Latino community survives this COVID-19 epidemic and helps Houston thrive. On that note, for a Latino perspective, I wanted to focus on three of the points you bring up, which to me, along with your research, 
clearly charts some of the structural barriers Latinos face in Houston, which can become even more insurmountable post-COVID-19. And the first one I want to talk about are art cartels. So as a Libre Traficante, <laughs> we've been advocating for equitable and sustainable arts funding, while most arts professionals and politicians feel that we have a level playing field, you provide some critical history regarding that myth. You write, John and Dominique Manil founded their extraordinary cutting-edge museums, the Manil Collection, by creating an art cartel, which was joined by other wealthy Houstonians and then bequeathed it to the city. Tell us a little bit about that history and how it makes a mark in your research. Well, the arts are tremendously important, and they, it's one of the great strengths of Houston is the quality of the arts. And what is so interesting now is, is with the ethnic diversity of Houston, the arts are thriving in new ways. I mean, I think, for example, of, of the Houston Grand Opera with its mariachi operas. That recognition that an opera is a story put to music, and there are wonderful stories of especially of the immigrant communities that have come to Houston. And you can see the, the art, you can see it also in the Museum of Fine Arts, the, the broadening of our understanding of the, of the value and importance of the art in shaping a, a shared sense of the value and majesty that come from the combination of all the cultures of the world. What is striking for America, and it's particularly clear in Houston, is that this country was an amalgam of European nationalities and is now becoming a microcosm of the world the first nation in the history of the world that can say we are a free people and we come from everywhere. And nowhere, as we said, is it clearer than in, than in Houston. 52% of everybody in Harris County, Texas, under the age of 20, 52% are Latinos. They will be the workers and citizens and taxpayers and voters of Houston in the 21st century. The Anglos are increasingly aging. The baby boom generation of Anglos born in that incredible period after World War II when the rising tide lifted all votes. The average American woman gave birth to 3.6 children, 76 million babies born between 1946 and 1964. The leading edge, overwhelmingly Anglos, the leading edge turned 74 this year. And we're going to watch the growing, increasing aging of Anglos and the young folks disproportionately are Latino, African-American, and Asian. And they will be the future of the city. And the, and the arts are a central part of building the celebration of, of cultures across the planet, now all coming together in this one remarkable scene. Yeah, all that's going to play a big role during the recovery post-COVID-19 because tourism is down that ties into arts funding. So maybe I can segue by saying, unless Houston makes it clear that you can find the Mexican food and Mexican-American art, it's not going to be able to ride that tailwind. Right. I mean, we're, well, we're heading into a really difficult period, a, a period of really daunting challenges in terms of, of the health pandemic, in terms of, the, of unemployment rates that rival the Great Depression, and the collapse of oil prices is particularly powerful for Houston. So there's a kind of triple whammy mm. hitting the city. We're going to go through a very difficult time. And my hope is that this book can help remind us that, that there are, uh, while we're dealing with the short-term challenges, there are longer-term challenges and opportunities that we want to make sure we lose sight of. And we, we want to come out of this pandemic stronger, more future-oriented, more resilient, and, and it's going to be interesting to see whether we can do it. It's, this is going to be a tough time. Next six, six to ten months will be very tough for all of us. 
But Houston has enormous strengths going into this. And one of the things that was interesting in our surveys this year is significant increase in the sense of solidarity across the board, increasing interpersonal friendships across all the different ethnic communities, much more positive views of undocumented immigrants and Muslims and uh, gays and lesbians. I mean, there's a sense of, of comfort with, diverse, with this diversity, a sense of, of of solidarity, and above all, that question about trust. One of the classic questions in survey research is generalized trust. Do you think most people can be trusted, or you can't be too careful in dealing with people? And the percent in Houston saying most people can be trusted was at 32% and then 35, 37, 42% this year. So it's a significant continuing increase in the sense in this together that one of the great strengths of Houston is that we reach out to help strangers you know, as we just experienced the Harvey hurricane. We're going to get more hurricanes. The season is just beginning. We're facing major challenges as our other cities across America and indeed across the world. Houston has enormous strengths if you can do it right and if you can build on this. And, and again, with the, with the idea always in mind of coming out of this stronger than we were when we went in. Well, and I think you touch on the dangers of our communities being disconnected. In the book, you ask fellow American Leadership Forum member Michael Trevino, why are there so few Latino leaders? Very poignant question. And you also interview another ALF alum, uh, Dr. Laura Murillo, CEO yes. of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And you talked to her about the leadership program. She says, quote from the book, the needle hasn't improved much for us in either politics or business. So we talked during the second half of the show about that, but what do your findings suggest about that disconnect between Latinos' cultural capital and the rest of Houston? Well, there are two big things to keep in mind there, right? Number one is Latinos are by far the youngest of all the communities. It, it takes a while to develop leadership and to be in a leadership position. And the other is, of course, education. Highly educated, older Latinos are in leadership positions to some degree. Not as much as they should be, but, but not as as far behind as the overall picture of, of the different communities. The great challenge for the Latino community is education. And, and the great challenge is, you know, we were watching uh, Latino immigrants. The longer they are in this country, the better they do. The more money they make in their jobs, the more they have friendships across the different communities, the more confidence they have that if they work hard, they can succeed. There's a growing sort of uh, success that comes with among the Latino immigrants who are here, even coming to low levels of education, working their way out of poverty. What's striking is that there's no improvement from second to third generation Latinos. U.S.-born Latinos, of parents, both of whom were also born in this country, third generation, are doing no better than second generation. Uh, U.S.-born children of uh, immigrant parents in working their way out of poverty and having and getting education beyond high school in all of those things that have to do with, with mobility into the today's economy that requires education and skills to a higher degree than, than ever before. There are blockages, and the blockages come above all from the very small number of Latinos who get college degrees and the critical need to expand that dramatically and to start with preschool. Yeah, one of the striking things in our surveys this year and two years ago was is a overwhelming support for a statement that said, are you in favor or opposed to increasing local taxes in order to provide universal preschool education? 
for every child in Houston. Increasing local taxes. No one wants to increase in local taxes. 70% in the survey this year said they were very strongly in favor or slightly in favor of increasing local taxes to provide universal preschool. And what's striking there is that that is absolutely correct. Uh, it's, that's when the brain is growing by 60%, when, when kids are either ready or not ready for the lessons of, of kindergarten and beyond. One of the moments of truth in education is third grade reading. If you're not reading at the third grade level in third grade, you are four times more likely to drop out of high school. And the single most powerful predictor, whether you can read at third grade level, is did you start kindergarten ready to learn to read? And rich kids in Houston start kindergarten one and a half to two years ahead of poor kids. And it's especially in the Latino community and also among African Americans where, where that education is so critical. The cradle to career from birth to college is where education needs to be. And the public understands that today in a way that they didn't as much five or ten years ago. The question is, can we translate that understanding into effective action to ensure that kids in, in Houston studying uh, at, at age one and a half or two get systematic and effective education to be prepared for kindergarten two or three years later. And, and uh, Houston does a much worse job than either Dallas or San Antonio in providing universal preschool education. Your, your book and your research does a very good job of creating a portrait for what I'm going to call the condition of invisible Latino leaders, because I think that has a lot of implications in a very mayor-centric city. You address the fact that Houston is a very mayor-centric city. You interview Ed Emmett, former Harris County judge, and he talks about Bob Lanier's role in the evolution of that framework. We'll also be talking to ALF alum, Texas Senator Carol Alvarado, during the second half of the show about this. How does this political structure influence the fate of Latinos in Houston, and how is that reflected in your research? Well, I think the best way to think about this is that we're right at the beginnings of what is a fundamental, irreversible revolution, right? The Anglos have been in total control of the city from its beginnings. They're aging rapidly, but they're still in control, although less so each year. You can watch more and more Latinos and, and Asians and, and African Americans in positions of leadership and, and important roles. And that's going to continue no matter what, because as I say, the real, one of the big demographic stories of Houston and America is the aging of Anglos and the disproportionate percentage of young people who are Asian and African American and above all Latino. And, and as Latinos get more education and the second generation are you know, 100% American and fully involved in, in the processes of earning money and, and, and providing leadership, you're going to see inevitably a kind of a, a transformation. There's something called the psychology of inevitability that is happening across the board, particularly clear in Houston, where people are increasingly recognizing this is what's going to happen. This is who we are. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's, and you can see more and more opportunities open up for Latinos. I would be very surprised 10 years from now not to find many more Latinos in, in obvious positions of leadership. As indeed we already have now, the county judge, you talked about Ed Emmett, who mm -hmm. replaced Ed Emmett, a young Latina woman, right? Of tremendous capability. And that sort of thing is going to happen more and more. Latino leadership is important right across the board. We need to start preparing Latinos more 
for the roles that they're going to be asked to play in helping to shape the history of the 21st century. It's fun to imagine what the 50th anniversary of your survey will be and mm. what level of Latino empowerment we're going to see. You know, in closing, some of my other favorite sociologists, because you're one of my favorite, of course. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but others like Pierre Bourdieu, Gloria Zildua, Dr. Guadalupe San Miguel, strive to create a sociology for the people with your dedication to this profound research, you provide tools that can lead to real-life policy changes. I think you've become a sociologist for the people. What's your vision mm. for this continued work and your next books? Well, I mean, there's several things to think about there. One is, of course, this pandemic that we're just about to enter into, this gradual process of trying to bring our economy back, ensure that we don't keep having such disproportionate numbers of, of victims of COVID, especially among Latinos, as we know. We finished the last survey just before the pandemic hit. So it will be interesting to see how do we, when we go back and do the survey again in January and February of 2021, how will we have been changed? How much stronger or, or, or less coherent and, and uh, the strength of our sense of community will have developed from that process of, of, of addressing those really daunting challenges that lie ahead. But my hope is that, that this, the surveys have shown us to be a much more interesting and progressive people than we thought we were. Someone once said that these surveys have shown us that, has shown us that we're better than we thought we were. We are, we are, when you ask people across the board in the privacy of their homes, how do you see the world? You get a picture of a, of a community that is increasingly comfortable with this diversity, excited about the prospects of the future, uh, committed to the belief that this is one of the great cities of the world that has been paid too little attention to, and, and, uh, uh, and some real strengths, as we've touched on, uh, going into these challenges that are going to be very interesting to watch as, 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 as we move forward. You know, I did, I've done the survey now for 30, 39 years. It's time to do something else. It's very hard not to want to keep watching the city change. And, and, and part of what I hope this book will do is to put Houston more on the, on the wider map to be clear to the rest of the country and the world that this is a city worth paying attention to. This is where, for better or worse, the American future is being worked out. Well, you've definitely accomplished that. Thanks for putting us on the map. And thank you so much for your commitment to the community and to the intellectual life of Houston and the whole country. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. Great to talk to you. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, I'm vegan, but I'm still too young to vote. So I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information at my school. I'm not taught any of this. So shows like Latino politics and news on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino politics news with Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote and have my own show. Viva KPFT! Pena de no ser tuya y tenerte lejos estando aquí 
si tú quisieras estar más cerca No hable con nadie, llámame a mí Solo si tú quieres, eh, sabe que me tienes Tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We are providing a Latino perspective on Stephen Kleinberg's new book, Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of a Changing America. And for that, we're talking to Dr. Laura Murillo, an alum of the American Leadership Forum who is interviewed in the book. She was named president and CEO of the Houston Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in 2007. With the support of the chamber board and staff, she has set unprecedented records, including becoming the largest Hispanic chamber in the nation. Membership has grown from 400 to 4,000 members, and revenues have increased from $150,000 to $2.6 million. Two years after taking the helm, the Houston Hispanic Chamber of Commerce won the National and Regional Hispanic Chamber of the Year Award from the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Marketer of the Year by the American Marketing Association twice during her tenure. She also serves as the founding president and CEO of the Chamber's Foundation, founding executive producer and host for the Chamber's radio and television program on CBS, KHOU, and Univision, She's a Telemundo political commentator. She's appeared on numerous national outlets. Laura, thank you so much for calling in, and thank you for all you do. Oh, well, thank you, Tony. It's, it's my pleasure to be on the radio with you, and congratulations. And we're glad that you're always out there advocating for our community. Oh, that, that means a lot. I appreciate it. I feel like our community is coming into its own. And one more sign of it is that this book, Prophetic City, is going to have a national impact. And I love that you're archived in there. In the book, you say the needle hasn't improved much for us, neither politics or business. Break that down for our listeners. Well, absolutely. First of all, to Dr. Stephen Kleinberg, what an honor given the the vast majority of, of leaders in this city that uh, he would uh, recognize uh, the work of uh, the chamber and of myself and, and just an honor to be included. He is a tremendous asset to our region, and now this book will share our stories with the larger population across the country. So let me begin being the optimist to say that there are many phenomenal Hispanic leaders, Latino leaders, in our region who've made tremendous strides. While saying that, it is absolutely true that in many ways we still are not at the table. So when you think of the uh, many, many corporate boards in the Grand Houston area where we represent less than 1.5%. We look at uh, PhDs. We're still across the country at just a little bit over 1%. When we look at our city council, our major corporations, in terms of leadership, any major corporation might have maybe one Latino or Latina 
in an executive capacity if they have one. And so, yes, we're graduating more. Women are doing um, much better as it relates to getting degrees. Uh, we know that Latinas are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs across the country. We are a young population. As Dr. Kleinberg has said, 70% of Latinas in Houston are between the ages of 18 and 44. So we have a long, long, long way to go. In the book, Stephen asks fellow American leadership alum Michael Trevino where the Latino leaders are. You go on to talk about the success of the leadership program that you founded through the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Tell us about the goals and successes of the program. And then why is there this disconnect between the cultural capital that we Latinos know we have and the rest of Houston that keeps looking for us while I feel at least that we keep shouting, here we are, here we are, here we are. Yes, that's great questions. And I look at my experience, my career, and, and where I am, how I've had the opportunity to represent Houston women, uh, Latinos across the globe. And I did not do that by myself. There were always people by my side, whether it was uh, – earning my degrees in the University of Houston and professors there to great community leaders and entrepreneurs such as Olga Solis, Dr. Gorti Karam, Dr. Tacho Mendiola, Johnny Mata, the list goes on and on. And what I realized is that all of the doors for me, they all stopped me. I learned something from each of them. And as I immersed myself more at the Chamber of Commerce, I looked around and saw that everyone was about the same age. My friend, 98% of all of my meetings were with CEOs, men, and I thought to myself, where are the women? Where are the people under 30? Where are the people under 50, for goodness sakes? Where are they? And I continued just to ponder about what I experienced and how it helped me. And I took out some white sheets and a sharpie with two books in my office and just began putting things on the wall and, and trying to connect the dots about corporate sponsors who are always saying, we need more. Latinos, we need more Hispanics, we need more et cetera, et cetera. And I think you were there here, hello. And <laughs> their needs, and I thought of the young college students graduating from college. I thought of all of those that were first generation getting masters and doctors. And I thought, you know, how is it that these young people are not connected to these corporations? How is it that they're not leading and getting those opportunities to serve in larger capacities? And as I wrote everything down and talked to the board, and we had a lot of different ideas, for me, the exciting part was to be able to connect our youth, our young leaders, and by young, I mean with less than 10 years of work experience, and to help supercharge superstars, because they were already shining, and if we could just help connect them. And for me personally, Tony, after my 15-year tenure at the University of Houston, I missed being with young people. I miss mm. leadership classes. I miss sharing stories. I miss bringing in friends of mine that were presidents, CEOs, elected officials. And key to all of this has been to integrate non-Hispanics. It goes to your question about um, how we're making strides at the same time. We're shouting, saying, here we are, here we are. I think one of the things that we do as Latinos is that we tend to, because it's more comfortable, to connect ourselves with other Latinos and, and shout, and we're shouting to each other, and we need to speak with a firm, strong, confident voice to non-Latinos, that we're part of this community, 
and that the more integrated we are into the society, into leadership, into business, the better our city will be. And that's what we've done with this Emerging Leaders Program, who now is over 250 graduates who've gone through this wow. program. Tony, it always comes to at some point with nonprofits and with our community resources, access to capital and money. We had zero money. We've been able to raise thanks to the goodness of our board, philanthropy, corporations, and others, well over a million something for this particular initiative. It can be done. We have to open those doors for others because doors have been open for us, and it's our duty, it's our responsibility, and it costs nothing for them to be part of the program other than for them to help themselves and or help others. Well, I hope people are going to listen to the archive of this interview because you touch on so many different facets from a bird's eye view, but you're also working on something very practical that can lead to results. And I'm going to resist diving into all those nuances because you you really have put your finger on a, a lot of different aspects that are key to our success. So you, you mentioned our own perspectives. The book, Prophetic City, is based on almost 40 years of research. And over the course of the surveys, Stephen conducted his shares of different questions that keep coming back. So one question that he's asked several times, he goes to Latinos and he asks them if they feel discriminated against or have seen discrimination. And he points out that when Latinos make over $75,000 a year, they report seeing less discrimination. Now, that's not the case with other groups. African-Americans continue, according to his research, reporting the same amount of discrimination even when they cross that threshold of income. This is just one data point, of course, and I think this is going to be a continued discussion, but with your expertise as a PhD, as a business leader, as a voice for the community, share your insights on some of the different ways that data point can be understood. So the reality is that I think women, minorities, continue to face discrimination through a variety of avenues, but more so in the form of microaggressions. It's the subtlety, it's the unspoken, it's the well you should have known, it's the unwritten rules that come through experience. And that goes from our children to college students to young professionals to senior experienced leaders. And I'll tie it back to, as I speak to young women and and leaders at the variety of motivational conferences and um, opportunities, is that especially when I talk to minorities, especially when I talk to women, I talk about confidence or the lack thereof and how the lack of confidence opens the door for people to minimize and marginalize us. And there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. Yes, I think for Latinos especially, we talk about culture of being caring, being caretakers, being thoughtful, being appreciative, and sometimes to our detriment. And so we need to balance all of those beautiful characteristics and include empowerment, include excellence, include education, equity, because we earn and we merit the same stature, the same opportunities as anyone else. You're bringing a lot of intelligence and cariño to 
to the table at the same time as you're giving our community some real life altering information, but then also offering them a way to act. As the book indicates, things are going to get more complicated. Kleinberg goes out of his way to say that it is important for Latinos to be catered to or to be edified because the fate of Houston is in the Latino demographic. The book is coming out as we enter the reopening of Texas business. Next year's findings are be important to attract the hearts and minds of Texans after this. You've been advocating for the more business and business in our community during COVID-19 relief efforts. In closing, what are some things that you're watching to make sure that the Latino community can equitably navigate this pandemic and help Houston thrive on the other side of this? Well, we're fortunate to have very strong relationships at the local, county, state, national level. And so we're monitoring conversations as they relate to public policy, making sure that we are on those phones, that we are providing data and information so that those in the position to make decisions have accurate data and facts. And also trying to provide information as general institutional distrust of government and institution to encourage them to do their part, to be confident, to ask for support. We know that during rough hurricanes and a variety of different situations, Latinos often do not go forth and ask for help. It's somehow as if it's not in our We contribute, we are paying taxes, we are rightfully um, able to step forward and seek infrastructure support, PPP, uh, the SBA, Small Business Administration, et cetera. And so we are working with those entities and at the same time advocating on behalf of the business community, of the small business community with the Latino population, and we're talking to individuals to say, speak up for yourself, advocate for yourself, ask for questions, seek those resources. It goes back to confidence, it goes back to empowerment, it goes back to making sure that we're knowledgeable. And the Houston Hispanic Chamber of Commerce has been doing that. Thank you, Dr. Laura Murillo, for your insights and for all you do for the community. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, I'm vegan, but I'm still too young to vote. So I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information in my school. I'm not taught any of this, so shows like Latino Politics and News on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote and have my own share. Viva KPFT!
Thanks for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz, and we're very happy to have on the air with us a friend of the radio show, a friend of Nuestra Palabra, and someone that's been advocating for our community for a long time, Senator Carol Alvarado. She is proud to serve Texas Senate District 6 in Harris County. She was first elected in 2008 during a special election. Previous to that, she served five terms representing District 145 in the Texas House of Representatives since 2008. Her trajectory has covered about 12 years of Kinder Institute surveys led by Dr. Stephen Kleinberg. She, too, is an alumnus of the American Leadership Program mentioned in Dr. Kleinberg's book, I'm proud to be a member as well. The book Prophetic City talks about Houston as a mayor-centric city. The pros and cons of that structure have influenced the Latino community. First of all, Senator Alvarado, welcome to the radio show. Please start by telling us a little bit about your path to Texas Senator and what that says about challenges and opportunities for Latinos in a major city like Houston. Hola, Tony. It's so good to be with you. I'm a, a big fan of yours, uh, not just through this radio show, but we've been friends a long time and I've been a big supporter of Nuestra Palabra. You and I have been on the front lines advocating for textbooks in our colleges that truly reflect our Chicano Mexican American history. So I'm very happy to, to be on your show. I'm a native of the East End community. I grew up in Manchester. Um, both my parents uh, were born in Texas. All of my grandparents, except one, were, were born in different parts of Mexico. And I'm the youngest of five, graduated from Milby High School and University of Houston with two degrees. Uh, there were two issues that really, as a kid, sparked my passion for public service and my interest in politics. I grew up in a neighborhood that was surrounded by a lot of chemical plants and refineries and railroad tracks that trapped us into a neighborhood. And I just started advocating for cleaner air and getting our companies that were right in our backyard to be accountable and to be better neighbors and to get to know the community, not just to be there nine to five and not invest in the community. And it started over a, a protest of a permit. It ended up being a, a year of negotiating with the company to create something called the Good Neighbor Agreement. And the community got a lot of concessions. I was you know, in my early 20s, just in college. I, I did not know what I was doing. I mean, I was sort of learning on the fly. And I teamed up with a group called Texans United that they're no longer around, but they were an environmental group that helped me and guided me. And I was a precinct chair in the Democratic Party and fostered relationships with the elected officials to get them to be supportive of the community's position during this protest of the company's permit. So fast forward, you know, we, we got, uh, as I said, a lot of concessions and our case was studied by you know, students at Harvard in the business college class on negotiations. We were featured on the USA Today News, and in other environmental community publications. So that was one interest. I felt like because we were in a low-income, predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood, that we were being taken advantage of, and I that really struck a chord with me. And I, I fought hard, and I knew we weren't going to be able to shut them down. I didn't want to shut them down because they did employ people in the community, but I wanted them to be accountable 
and to invest in better technology to reduce emissions, which they ended up doing and set up a scholarship fund and so many other things. And then another issue that, that really got me going to as a, as a young adult was women's reproductive rights. My sister worked for Planned Parenthood and the Republican convention, I think it was in 1992, was here in Houston. And there were a lot of protesters at Planned Parenthood on Fannin Street. That's when they were located in Midtown. And my sister recruited me to volunteer to walk women, to escort them from their car into the clinic because they were getting harassed and protested by mostly men on the other side who didn't want them to go into the clinic. And pretty much every woman that I talked to was going in there for, you know, well woman exam, prenatal care, you know, checkup of some sort, breast exam, or, you know, something other than an abortion. And so that really bothered me a lot. And so I got involved as a volunteer and served on the board of Planned Parenthood for years. So a lot of things about where I grew up have to do with the the passion I still carry in my heart, the fire in my belly to speak up when I feel that the community is being done wrong or we're getting shortchanged or people being taken advantage of. All of that, my eyes were open to that at a very young age and, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. Where I grew up and the conditions, you know, we didn't have the, the, the best streets and, and the cleanest air, but I did what I could to make a difference. Well, you provide us a firsthand testimony of what we would call those community issues that if they go under the radar, hurt our community, and when they make national news, don't necessarily get pegged as Latino issues. So is there a disconnect between what the public wants and what the majority of elected officials believe that Latinos want? I think, you know, unfortunately, we're living in some very um, politically segregated times. Uh, the political divide has gotten deeper. The lines are uh, more profound in the sand of either you know you're you're with us or you're against us or you're blue or you're red or you're D or you're R you're conservative you're liberal and I think that has clouded a lot of issues uh, in whether it's in the Texas legislature it's in Congress or it's here on the the local level and I mean I support you know universal um, pre-K and I think, you know, those that oppose those type of issues have kind of driven a a really strong wedge between communities, and it's been difficult to pass progressive things and to be proactive, for example, education. For so long, many of us Democrats in the legislature wanted all-day free pre-K. And that was something that was opposed every session by conservatives, by Republicans. However, because of the cuts in the past education and ridiculous issues like bathrooms and anti-immigrant issues dominating the session, educators and parents got very involved in campaigns and started coming to the Capitol and advocating. And as a result, We were able to pass the HB3 Big Education Bill, which had all-day pre-K free. And it went without very little 
heavy debate. It was something that was accepted by both sides, and it was a stark difference than what we faced you know, four years ago, six years ago, or eight years ago in the legislature. So I hope that that continues, that we can focus more on issues that help to improve our education system, our workforce pool, the health and well-being of our community. Because, like I said in the past, you've, you've had a small group, but they've spoken very loudly, that have um, created these wedge issues, and we've spent more time trying to kill bad bills and to um, get rid of um, very partisan issues and not had a whole lot of opportunity to invest in promoting progressive issues. In closing, Prophetic City focuses on the disparity in education for Latinos. You hold a Master of Business Administration and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science from the University of Houston. You've been an advocate for Latino art and culture in Mexican American Studies. What role has education played in your trajectory and what do we have to do to get more of our community access to art, culture, and higher education? I grew up in a very traditional Mexican-American household. My, my dad worked. He was in construction, member of a union. He was a hard worker. My mom stayed at home till, you know, I was maybe in high school, and then she went to work for the county in the elections division. But, you know, I was raised in an environment where you worked hard and you were accountable to yourself and your actions. And, you know, I was taught that nothing comes for free. You have to work. You have to earn it. Don't expect people to give you things. Uh, we're not looking for, um, you know, handouts. You know, this sounds kind of funny, but my parents said, if we can't afford to give you a quinceanera, you're not going to have one. They didn't believe in going and asking people to be the padrino of this or that. And I grew up in a very strict, you know, Catholic home. So it was a very disciplinary household. Missing school was not an option unless you were sick. When I came home, the first thing I did was I had to sit down and do my homework before I could go out and do anything, play or whatever, watch TV. That was set for me growing up. And I knew um, that education was extremely important. My parents would instill that upon me. My mother did graduate from high school. My dad only had a third grade education. And, you know, I saw the hard work that he did and the impact that it had on his body. He wanted a better life for us, and education was a part of that. My parents were involved. My mom, my dad was you know, too busy working, but my mom was involved. As, back then they called them room mothers or something like that. And I have been a big advocate for education as a as an elected person, I tried to get to the majority of the schools in my district to go read to the elementary kids and to promote literacy, especially in the summer when kids think, you know, it's time to just give your mind a break. And I tell them, no, it's like your body. You, know, you have to continue exercising it. Otherwise, you lose the ability. And when you come back to school, it's harder to get back into the groove. But Latinos are now 50, almost 53% of the population in our Texas public schools. We have a workforce there with so many Latinos, future workforce, but we have to make sure that they're equipped with 
either opportunities to go to college or to go through vocational and technical training um, because there are a lot of jobs out there. And now after COVID, it's, you know, that's going to be a little different. The demand is going to be, you know, possibly lean more towards IT. Uh, we know that our oil and gas sector has suffered during the COVID. It was already suffering before COVID. So some of those jobs are going to be slow to come back. But as we've seen how technology and delivery and digitizing things are dominating the, the job sector now, those are going to be opportunities for our kids. Growing up, I mean, yeah, I was scared of my parents because you get the, the chancla if they misbehaved. <laughs> and I just, I knew that, that I didn't have a choice. I had to make good grades and then get to college. Well, we appreciate you calling in to give us a bird's eye view of everything from Texas policy down to the chancla and everything in between. We wish you continued success and thank you for your public service. Tesora